tonight, I'm going to start my sermon now, and I'm going to do so with a story. I'm going to tell you a story that I've told before. It's been in circulation a little bit, but I tell this story because I just don't want you guys to take me for granted. I came close to being somebody at one point in life, and it's, it's just that time of the year where I remind you of who I almost was. Nine years ago, Lauren, is my wife even here? <laughs> oh my gosh. I, we got married, what, nine years ago? Eight years ago, okay, all right, sleeping on the couch tonight. Eight years ago, eight years ago, Lauren and I just got married in September, and we, um, we had this small little apartment in Arden Hills, Minnesota, and we didn't have much money, not that that has really changed over the years, come to think of it, but what I was trying to do at the time is I was trying to play music just to help put food on the table, and so needless to say, we didn't eat very often in that stage of our lives. <laughs> We had a lot of saltine crackers and whatever we could find underneath the couch, which tended to be more saltine crackers. In the midst of this involuntary fasting season, I got an opportunity that came my way. I had a talent scout from NBC call me up and say, Matt, would you ever consider being a part of The Voice? And I said, do you feed people in LA? They said, yes. And so I went. I left my bride on the first week of our marriage and I went down to LA with about 125 other people. and. We stayed in this hotel where we were kind of on lockdown. You couldn't go out and see the city, really. It was day in, day out, kind of this grind. All of these musicians who were anxiously hoping that this would be the elusive, mythological big break that finally just, you know, skyrockets your career. And so day in, day out, all we did was music. It was, you met with vocal coaches, you had uh, group sessions, you had wardrobe technician. you had, the whole thing was just, Music, 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 and we were all anxiously excited about what this might produce. We did all of these things in hopes that it would do some things for us in the future. Future contracts, concerts, maybe we could be like Grey Shot someday if we played our cards right, maybe. I was kind of like on the fence about the whole thing, didn't really take it too seriously, but then uh, they made their cut from 125 to 75, and I got a call saying, Matt, I want to congratulate you because of the 100,000 people that tried out, you are now down to the final 75. And now I'm getting arrogant. You can actually see the arrogance taking over my face in this photo. Like, this is getting real now. Now I have a fighting chance here at finally becoming somebody. You know, proving to Lauren's parents why I was a good choice for her to marry me. So we go through the next few weeks and we get to what is known at The Voice as the blind audition days. There are 60 spots for the 75 of us who are left, and there are 25 of us going each on these days. The first day, I didn't, I didn't go. I don't know why, but it, it, wasn't my, it wasn't my time. So 25 went, and um, then the second day came. And I still didn't go then. And now I'm getting a little nervous. Like, so I'm like, what, what, is this like a ranking system, or how are we going about doing this? But I'm assuming still there's 75 of us left, and there's only 60 slots available. I should get a fair crack at this thing. Third day comes around, and we are sitting all day in this hotel room. And I remember sitting with people as they were anxiously being called out one by one, when finally Carson Daly comes in, and Carson and I are very close friends. So I said, Car Car, what's wrong? You seem sad. And Carson Daly says, you guys, I don't, don't know how to explain it to you, but all the spots filled up, and, and there's no more space available. We're so sorry. A month and a half down there, and you could feel the energy draining out of that room. 
there was like this collective guttural, ugh, all of that time, all of the dreaming and the scheming, the hoping, the wishing and the wanting, all of that for, for this. What am I going to do now? Where do I go from here? This isn't the big break. Something feels broken right now, but it's not the big break. I don't remember much about that time, but I do remember getting on that plane the next day. I remember sitting on this plane in the runway in LA, and I remember all of these things that were sitting in me. All of these questions of what do I do with this waste? What was the point of any of that? I said, yes, this opportunity, I went after it. I felt good about it. It got exciting for a little bit, but now it's just, it, it's a waste. What do I do with that waste? What do you do with your waste? What do you do with those things that you tried to chase after, but you found out you weren't fast enough to catch up with? What do you do with those things that you put yourself out there for? You made yourself vulnerable. You allowed yourself to dream big. And you went after it. But it didn't work out. And now when you think about it, there's that ache, that bruise that doesn't seem to go away. Maybe for you, it was a marriage. You found love with somebody. It was going good for a little while, and then it wasn't going good anymore. And now you have to hold those three years or five years or 10 years or 20 years and ask, what do I do with all of that time? Or maybe for you, it was a business idea. You invested a lot of money around this beautiful and expansive big idea, and things looked good, felt good, were going good, and then they weren't. The plans didn't produce. The money didn't stick around. The dream slowly started to die, and you started to lose it over all that you lost. All those years of hard work, the sweat, the sleepless nights, the missed baseball games, the forgotten anniversaries, all of those things. What do you do with any of that? Or maybe for you, it's parenting. Maybe for you, it's the child that you gave up many sleepless nights for and many days of choosing them over you for. And ever since that moment that you took them home from the hospital and you cradled them in, in your arms and you loved them and you loved them and you loved them and you loved them and you gave to them and you gave to them and you loved them and then they turn 23 and they won't return your calls. They don't want connection with you anymore. They don't want to come home. What do you do with all those years that you died and died again for this person that doesn't even recognize you as pivotal in their life anymore? How do you carry these things that you can't carry anymore? How do you hold the heaviness of all that's behind you? What do you do with the waste? There's a story in the life of King David. We're in this King and I series, and it's always been a story that's been like a healing balm for me. It's been this, um, it has a way of speaking into the waste, into the aches. It tells us what to do, and it's been profoundly helpful for me, and so my hope is that you'll see it in the same way. If you were here last week, let me start by giving you a little context. If you were here last week, you'll remember Debbie talking about uh, King David slaughtering King Kong, right? I mean, David and Goliath, the little engine who could. He takes on the giant. The giant goes down. Debbie told us all about what David did. What wasn't mentioned, though, was why David did it why David went after it at all. 
Thankfully, David does tell us why he did it. It's not like the impetus behind this is less of like a, a Christian conviction, and it's more of like this capitalistic ambition. We have David here who steps onto the scene, and his first line in all of his story comes after he overhears this group of soldiers talking about what they will get if they take down this giant and who they'll get to get with. So David overhears him, and he goes, could you run those numbers by me one more time? How much would I get paid if I do this? How much would, would I make? Where would it take me if I say yes to this? If I go after this, what will be my reward? So they rehearse it one more time. They tell him once again what he's going to get. And David sees the big bully across the field, and he also sees this opportunity as a big break. Tragically, though, as we see the story play out, we find David go out into the field, take on this giant, take down this giant, get the win, and then in the very moment where he's expecting to receive a trophy, he instead becomes a target. King Saul, who was once celebrating David on the battlefield, is now scared of David in the ballot box, and he wants him dead. And so David gets gone. David starts running for the hills. David books it with 400 and more people, more than that, fan club, people who are groupies, people who are all about David right now. They follow him out into the woods, and they end up hiding together. The scriptures tell us that in 1 Samuel 23, the condition of who he is with in this moment, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Ajalom. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. Doesn't that sound like a good time? <laughs> Everybody who has issues is all upon you right now. It's not bad enough that the most powerful man in the world wants you dead. You're going to be hiding out with these people. Is it safe to say that when David said yes to fighting Goliath, that he didn't think that in doing so it would take him here? When David envisioned the reward, marrying the king's daughter, getting in on the king's money, this wasn't exactly what he had in mind where stage two would be. There's this expectation in you and in me and in David and dare I say everybody where we assume that good things should happen to people who do good. There should be a promotion attached to all of our hard work. We earned this moment. That's how the story's supposed to go, right? I mean, you've seen the movies. I've seen the movies. You've seen Rocky and Rudy. I watched Aladdin last night with my new boys. The idea, the same story is in all of those. If you have faith to walk out on water, the waves will solidify underneath your feet and you should be fine. But if that's the case, why is the should-be king in this faraway cave with all these weirdos and none of the wealth? Why did this happen to David? Why is he out here in this moment? How did things go so awry when everything went as planned? It isn't surprising to me that in this context, the first thing David says out loud is, can somebody give me a drink? It's just all a lot. Oh, that somebody would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, that's an interesting line to me because it's not just the water that he wants. There's also a well involved. 
there is a specificity that is tied to his longing. And it's tied to a well that has to do with where he was living. David is from Bethlehem. David used to be a shepherd in Bethlehem. When he was a boy, when he lived in the shadows, when he was on nobody's radar, all he had to do was make sure that the sheep were fed and hydrated and did not die. That was the extent of his concerns. That's all he had to do. Wake up, check that box, that one, and that one, and you're good. That's not what his life looks like anymore. That's not where his life has taken him now. Where David is now isn't where David used to be. And so when David says, what I would give for a drink from the water in the well in Bethlehem, he's not just asking for a drink. He's asking for a do-over. What I would give to just go back to that moment before I ran my mouth at the giant and I just brought the cheese to my brothers. What I would give to go back to the simpler times. What I would give to just press rewind just for a little bit, make all these complications go away. What I would give to undo all the things that I've done. What I would give to just go back to when it used to be so simple and easy and light. In the earlier parts of scripture, there's a conversation recorded between God and an angel. Okay, give the children all the happy feelings, deal. Okay, now as they age, don't let them recreate those feelings. Uh, make them hyper aware that they once had something that they'll never have again. Dude, what is your problem? <laughs> That's kind of what it feels like. There is this sense that as we grow, whether it's from dreams deflating or promotions not being all that they were cracked up to be, we get to these points where we go, man, can I go back, like, to when life was simpler? Remember when we first got married? Remember when we, we didn't have any money and so it didn't really matter taxes, per se? Remember when we had real things to be afraid of, like being kidnapped or monsters or the dark and not just, like, mingling and answering a phone? Remember when life was more simple? Could I just go back to back then? The tragedy is, is that we can't. We don't get to go back to that time before she left or they spoke up, before the money was spent, before the dreams all died. Now we are in this cave. Now we are on this plane, now we are holding this ring, now we are holding that photo, and now we're holding these rings, and we don't know what to do with these things anymore, and so we want to go back to that time before, when we didn't have to do anything with them at all. Have you ever been thirsty for a drink like this? A few of David's soldiers hear him speak up, and because they do not understand the difference between literal and figurative language, they figure, let's go get that man a drink. Clearly, he's got a dry mouth. We can do something about it. And so three of his mightiest soldiers, they take off. They hike 11 miles into enemy territory to get into Bethlehem. They break through the enemy's ranks. They risk life and limb, and then carefully, they carry this glass of water back from Bethlehem to their king in the cave. When they come back, and they're all bloodied up and exhausted. 
all for the sake of David, who is a little parched. David sees what they have done. David sees what they have brought. And then David does the unthinkable. He dumps the whole thing on the floor. I mean, can you just pause and try to imagine for a moment what that would be like to be one of those soldiers? You are bleeding. You just put your life on the line. You just risked it all for this glass of water for the king in the cave. And he took it from your hands and he dumped it onto the ground. I would be livid. I would be nauseous. I would be upset. After all that we just did for you, this is how you're going to play it. After all that we just went through, you're going to waste it like that and just dump it. For what? You would think that they would launch out at him and try to take him down, but they don't. Because David speaks up. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he says. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And then Samuel, the Deuteronomist who writes these stories, he finishes this climactic episode just by writing, and David did not drink it. That's the story. And David did not drink it. No mentioning of soldiers getting ticked off and jumping on him. Just David didn't drink it, and that was fine. Why? What did the soldiers hear inside of his words? What is it about what David said that put them in a place of peace? Because to every eye in the room, to you and I as we read this story, David just wasted it. David just took a precious gift and dumped it on the floor. Squandered it. And yet David, he says, no, 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 you, you're, not, you're not seeing it right. You got it all wrong. What you did is sacred. Not because it was successful. What you did is sacred because it made you sweat. It made you sacrifice. It made you stop walking around in all of your days on your tiptoes, trying to preserve your way to success, and you went all in on something. You bled for it. You almost died for it. And because I can see those open wounds on your hands, because I know that you just walked 12 miles to get me this glass of water, that is something special, and that is not for me. That is for the divine and the divine alone. That's set apart. Go with me now to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, we have this moment. Jesus is in a town called Bethany, and he's in the house of a man known as Simon the leper, which is a terrible name, but it's what they called him. The story reads to us like this. While Jesus is in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were livid. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Now picture this in your mind. This perfume was worth big bucks. You could have sold this and made a pretty penny. You could have actually used this money for something far more important than just dousing one person in it. Picture the perfume bottle being dumped over his head, dripping down the side of his face, onto his clothes, onto the floor, amidst the bugs and the dirt, and into the ground where it will be seen no more. What a waste. What a waste. That could have been spent on something better. That could have been used for something better. All of that value gone. And we can't put it back together again. 
once it leaves the bottle, it can't go back in. I mean, you can't just start walking around the room scooping up the perfume and putting it in the bottle. You can't start parsing out what is perfume and what is bug. It's gone. The moment has passed. It's empty. And to every eye that's in that room, they look at it and they say, that, that, was, that was dumb. That was a waste. You squandered it. It was over the top. It was excessive. It was inappropriate. And it was a waste. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 that's not at all what it was. Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. I wonder how many of us have been bothering ourselves, have been beating ourselves up, have been feeding the aches and the bruises from years of failure, from things that didn't work out from those things that cost us something and now we're walking with a limp? How many of us allow ourselves to continue to beat ourselves up again and again, bothering ourselves, thinking that it is a waste while Jesus is sitting here saying, no, that was beautiful. What you did was beautiful. God's dream for your life is not efficiency, it is not productivity, it is that you would invest yourself in your days, that you would sweat that you would live fully and fail miserably, that you would swing for the fences, that you would stop protecting your life and actually give yourself away. It is beautiful not because it was successful, not because it was street smart. It was beautiful because it was over the top and you went for it. It's the sacrifice that makes it sacred. It's the over-the-topness that makes it sacred. When you give yourself towards something that might kill you, destroy you, leave you at a loss, leave you depleted with a sense of deficit. That isn't the horrific thing that you can no longer look at. It's not this waste that you have piling up in your closet. It's a sacred piece of your story. When you stayed up late night with a friend, even though you had to take a test in the morning and you failed it miserably, That is sacred. When you spent your money wildly, money that you didn't even have so that your neighbors could eat, sacred. When you chose to love somebody who failed to love you back, sacred. When you make art that nobody appreciates, sacred. When you write a book that nobody reads, sacred. When you hold the hand of an enemy even after they drew a knife on you, sacred. When you gave that three, four, nine, 20 years to that person, cause, business, ministry. And it didn't do what you thought it would do. That was sacred. And all you can do now is what David did in that cave. You dump it onto the ground and you say, here, take this. It's the best prayer you'll ever learn. I want you to think about that with your eyes closed, not to get weird, but please. Just work with me here. Because I do think that we all have these spaces in our stories of these regrets or these angst or these things that we wish would have gone different or produced something better or ended with a different result and yet they didn't. And so we still hold them. We don't know what to do with them. And now is the time where you get the chance to relinquish your white knuckled grip and just say, here, take this. I can't carry it anymore. There are some things that are too heavy for you to bear. 
there are some weights that you aren't born to bear. What is that thing right now? Can you feel it in your hands? Can you feel your hands clenching around it? And what would it look like to just open up your fingers and release it? The first word in all recovery movements is recognizing that there is a higher power and it is not you. That you are not built to bear a burden of this size, but there is one who can. And there is one who will. My prayer is that we would all walk out of this room tonight lighter than when we first walked in. Jesus, God, we give you our lives. We live as living sacrifices, God, recognizing that it's in the living, not in the profits, not in the productivity, not in the career highlights, God. It's in the fact that we gave it all, that we spent ourselves recklessly, choosing not to tiptoe to the finish line, but to give it our all. Those are the things, God, that everybody else might say, man, what a waste. But you would say, are you kidding me? It's beautiful. Christ, give us the courage to live in a freedom like that. Jesus, you are good and we are grateful. And all God's children, we pray together. Amen. I like that phrase, it's beautiful. I think often in our life, in our journey, it doesn't feel so beautiful. It feels like we worked hard and we set self aside. And like Matt said, we sacrificed. And in the moment, that doesn't feel so beautiful. But I think the beauty of this story, the beauty of the story that we get to be a part of, is that it's beautiful because it's so much bigger than us that it's moving us towards something that's beyond us, that we maybe don't quite grasp. But we glimpse in moments as we look back on our lives and we see how God's worked it toward a beauty, how God's worked it to something lovely for his sake, and how he continues to do that. We get to be part of that story. The story we remember every Sunday night is a story about a God who loved us so much that he set himself aside and he came to earth and he loved and ministered and he taught us, worked hard, set himself aside and ended up dying on a cross. Probably didn't seem so beautiful in that moment, but we get to see the beauty of that gift. We get to see the sacrifice and the love and what ultimately is our hope. And so that's what we remember when we come together on Sunday nights and we take the bread and we break it and we dip it into the cup. The night before Jesus died, he sat at a table with his disciples and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. So that's what we do. We remember this great sacrificial love 
this beautiful thing when we take the bread and we dip it into the cup. So we invite you forward as you feel led to come. And there is gluten-free elements that'll be here and regular bread over here. And so please stand and together we'll pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever.